I move on now to uh, read the uh, New Testament reading, which is Acts chapter 3. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Bethlehem, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have. But what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said, to them, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to, over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me 
from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to bless you by turning each of you back from your sinful ways. Amen. The end of Luke's Gospel, that's what the disciples are doing. They are spending all day, every day, in the temple, praising God with joy in their hearts. Because Jesus, who died for them, is alive. And they acknowledge him as Lord and as Saviour. And that's fine by God. After all, Jesus tells them not to undertake any new ventures, but to wait in the city until they receive the promised Holy Spirit. So worshipping God in the temple is an excellent use of their time. But the job of the Holy Spirit when he comes is to move them out of the temple into the world. To turn worship into witness. There's a lot of talk about spirit-led worship, but it's worth bearing in mind that the Holy Spirit's job is not just to lead us into the presence of God. A spirit-led church is one that will be active in witnessing and in sharing the good news of Jesus with the surrounding community and the wider world. Thank you, Doug, for focusing on that in your prayers. It's this move from worship to witness that is the theme of the book of Acts. And in a programmatic statement right at the beginning of the book, the risen Jesus tells his disciples that when the Holy Spirit comes on them, they will be his witnesses. In Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and right to the ends of the earth. And as you read through the book of Acts, you can trace that progression. The first seven chapters focus on Jerusalem. Then from chapters 8 to chapter 12, as a result of Saul's persecution of the church, the range of witness extends to include Samaria and the regions beyond. There's a particular focus on Peter as he travels from place to place preaching the good news. But you get the sense that the Holy Spirit always wanted to move a little bit more quickly than the church would like. If Saul hadn't given the church in Jerusalem a hard time and his persecution hadn't caused the church to scatter you wonder whether they might have been quite happy staying in the immediate vicinity of Jerusalem. God had to to kick the bonfire a bit to get the spark to, to scatter and to expand the range. And as the range of the church's witness extends outwards, so gradually, disconcertingly, people who aren't Jews, aren't members of God's chosen people, aren't heirs of the covenant, these people start to believe in Jesus as well. God arranges an appointment in the middle of the desert between Philip and an Ethiopian. A one-to-one engagement. God goes to great lengths to set up a meeting between, between Peter and the Gentile centurion, Cornelius. A lot of effort goes into arranging these encounters for people to hear the good news who aren't members of God's covenant people. 
And then in Antioch, it's like the floodgates open. Some believers from Cyprus and Cyrene start to talk to non-Jews about Jesus, and they start to come to faith in significant numbers. And the powers in Jerusalem aren't quite sure what to make of this. So they send Barnabas down there to check it out. And when Barnabas arrives, he finds it's all kosher and above board. And even more non-Jews and Gentiles come to faith. And he fetches Saul, who had been the persecutor of the church, but is now a Christian and renamed Paul, and to come and work alongside him and to build up the church there. And so the stage is set for Antioch to be the base for God's gospel to go to the rest of the world. It's in a church meeting there that the Holy Spirit tells the believers, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And there at the start of chapter 13, they are sent out in Jesus' name to be led by the Spirit to take the good news of Jesus into new territory. And the rest of the book of Acts is spent recounting Paul's three missionary journeys into Turkey and Greece. His arrest in Jerusalem after the third journey. His transportation as a prisoner to Rome, where he spends his time there under house arrest telling people about Jesus. And whereas perhaps Rome is more the centre of the earth than the ends of the earth, all roads lead to Rome, all roads from Rome lead everywhere else. And the way in which the church takes root and grows there is evidence of its ability to flourish in every corner of the earth, as indeed it continues to do this day. Luke focuses upon the passage of the gospel westwards. But while Paul was trekking through Turkey and Greece, it was also heading north and south and east. And it was Paul's great ambition to bring the gospel to Rome. When he got there, he found it was there already. Who knows who had taken the gospel to Rome first? The Catholic Church claimed Peter for that, but it was likely tradesmen, travellers, seamen, um, traders just sharing the good news of Jesus as they went. And as Luke writes his two-volume work, Luke acts about what Jesus did during his earthly ministry and what he continued to do through his church by the power of the Holy Spirit, he makes it clear that this development of the church into a worldwide cosmopolitan movement was always part of God's master plan. It was what God always intended. And though people found it hard to accept and hard to get their heads around, it grew quicker than they expected. All these strange people were coming to faith in Jesus. Luke says, look, this is what God intended. And all the time as he tells his story, Luke has his eye on the bigger picture, constantly reminding his readers that God's heart is not just for God's people, God's heart is for the world. And you can see that in the passage that Doug read to us in Acts. It's a conversion story. The cripple at the gate of the temple is healed by Peter and John on their way into the temple, and the healed man makes such a noise, jumping up and down and praising God, that everybody wants to know what's going on. And Peter tells them in no uncertain terms that this man has been healed in the name of Jesus. You disowned him, he says to the Jews there. You handed him over to Pilate to be executed. But God raised him from the dead. And Jesus now waits in heaven for the moment when God will send him back to make everything new again. And addressing a Jewish audience as he is, Peter makes it clear how Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy. You know that prophet that Moses spoke about? 
He said that the Lord would send you another prophet just like him. And you would have to listen to everything this prophet said because anyone who didn't do so would be cut off from God's people. Well, that prophet is Jesus. He's the one that Moses spoke about. He's the prophet like Moses who you have to pay attention to. And in this way, he makes it clear that membership of God's people is dependent on their readiness to pay attention to what Jesus has to say. Because anyone who doesn't listen to Jesus is cut off from the people of God. The warning is quite stark. And he goes on to say, look, you are heirs of the prophets. You are heirs of the covenant God made with your fathers. And remember what God said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. It's not just about you. Through your offspring, that is Jesus, God's blessing will come to all the nations of the earth. In an address to Jews, talking to them about Jesus, Peter slips in that that reference. Actually, yeah, it's for you, but actually it's for everybody else as well. God's blessing is not just for the Jews, those physically descended from Abraham. It is for anyone who will listen to Jesus. It's for us. And Peter concludes by telling his hearers that when God raised up his servant Jesus, he sent him to the Jews first to bless each one of them as they turned for their wicked ways. Little word there, easily missed. First. He sent Jesus to you first. First to the Jews, so that they would have the chance of responding to Jesus and turning to God. And then, second, who comes second? It's the rest of the world, second. Everybody else has a chance to responding to Jesus as well, has the chance of receiving God's blessing as they turn from their wicked ways to accept Jesus as Lord and Saviour. So in his sermon, Peter says, look, Jesus is for you. God sent him from heaven to you, the Prince of Life. You are heirs of the covenant. You are heirs of the promises God made to Abraham. But get the bigger picture, because he's not just for you, he's for the whole world as well. And anyone, anyone who listens to what he has to say and responds by turning to him in faith will receive the blessing that God promised to Abraham. So he says to them, yes, you are sons of the covenant. And Jesus came to you as sons of the covenant to fulfill God's promises to you and to your forefathers. But he also came to open membership of that covenant to anyone who will receive him. Jesus isn't just for you. He's for the whole wide world. And I've got to say I admire the way in which Luke consistently does this throughout his Gospel and Acts. Almost every story he tells, there's just that little bit of, a, of an agenda there to say, yeah, look, look how big God's horizons are. God actually has the whole world in his heart. And God's agenda is for the church to be his witness to the whole wide world. And conversely, the whole wide world needs to be made welcome in his church. And Luke is disconcertingly honest sometimes about how the church struggled with that idea. How they found it hard to get their heads around. And you really do get the feeling that they would be quite happy playing it safe and just having people that they knew and were comfortable with. But God had bigger plans than that. And as I read through the book of Acts, I have to say that 
you know, the tensions that I see there between people that we know and people that we don't know, they are reflected in today's church today. Any church you go to, there are tensions like that. It's pretty much a fact of life that the older we get, the less adventurous we become. We know what we like, and we like what we know. And people enjoy coming to a church where they feel comfortable and secure with what has happened over a period of time. And they've been in the church a long time, and they like it just the way it is. And ministers who try and introduce change into churches like that do so at their peril. Yet as ministers who are committed to the message of God's word, we need to take our bearings from the Holy Spirit, who's saying all the time, well, look over the fence a little bit. See the world that is out there. See the heart of God for the world. See that the church is here, not just for worship, but for witness. And the Holy Spirit all the time is wanting to turn the church round and push us outwards, outside of our comfort zone. And that means that church cannot be primarily for the comfort and convenience of its established members. The primary purpose of the church actually is to act as witnesses to the risen Lord Jesus Christ in the world. But that brings tensions. Research conducted in St. Mary's University and published this year shows that for every new convert to the church, the church in the UK loses between 10 and 12 established members. That's a horrific statistic. And you can say what you like about statistics, but one way of reading that is to say, actually, all the changes that we do to get people in are far more effective at putting people off than they are than getting people in. So it's all very well gearing your church up for evangelism, but if in the process you lose ten times as many people as you gain, it's pretty clear the church is going to end up being very small indeed. So all of us ministers walk a kind of tightrope, trying to keep the established members happy, while at the same time reaching out and making the church accessible and relevant and welcoming to all those unchurched people out there who are on God's heart, need to be on our heart as well. But it's got to be possible. It's got to be doable. It's got to be achievable because it's God's plan. It was God's plan for the early church and Luke makes that very clear in Luke Acts. It's God's plan for us today. And in Acts chapter 2, Luke paints a picture of what the first believers were like, how they lived. He's been accused of painting an idealised picture here. As if he's telling his readers more what the church ought to be like than what it really was like. But it doesn't matter whether Luke is being descriptive or prescriptive. His portrait of the church, living, worshipping and witnessing together as God's covenant people is one that can and should inspire and challenge us in equal measure. So this is his blueprint, okay? This is what he says church as the new covenant people was like or maybe what it ought to be like. He says in Acts chapter 2 verses 42 to 47, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. 
And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Perhaps the key word there is devoted. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were people who knew the scriptures, knew and understood what they believed about Jesus. They had that depth of understanding. They were devoted to each other. They welcomed each other into their homes. They shared meals with each other. They offered those in need whatever resources they had at their disposal in such a spirit of generosity that no one went without selling property, possessions, whatever, so that there was enough to go round. They were devoted to worship, breaking bread, celebrating communion together, meeting every day in the temple courts to continue to praise God. They were devoted to prayer, which presumably was one of the key ingredients behind the powerful signs and wonders performed by the apostles. They were dedicated and devoted people. Luke doesn't say that they devoted themselves to sharing the faith, which is interesting. But despite that, on a daily basis, people joined their ranks. And maybe that's because they looked at people who were devoted to each other and to God and to prayer and to everything they could find out about Jesus and thought, that, that's a group of people worth joining because they had the respect of the people. Or maybe it's just that if you're devoted in that kind of way, then the presence of Jesus just spills out of your life in a way it can't be contained. But if we have that fourfold devotion, then we can have an expectation and a confidence and a hope that God will add people to his church today. Because it's not gone off God's agenda. It's still what he wants us to do. Still he wants us to be people who aren't just worshipping people, but people who are also witnessing people. So don't run scared. I'm not about to make you go out and talk to strangers in the Carfax. And if the thought of talking to somebody else about Jesus makes your blood run cold, don't worry, because we're not all evangelists. But we are all called to be witnesses. And I urge you, actually, to start by maximising your devotion to the Bible, to each other, to worshipping God, and to prayer. Because if we get those priorities right, then naturally this church will grow. The church in Jerusalem grew because people could see it was worth joining. What more do I need to say? Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for the way in which you transformed that frightened group of disciples into those who are willing to take on antagonistic leaders, to break new ground, to cross new boundaries in sharing the faith, to pay the price for being known as followers of Jesus Christ. Lord, increase our devotion. Our devotion to you, Lord, when we come to worship, may you evidently be at the centre of our lives, at the centre of these services, and fill our hearts with love for you. Increase our devotion to each other. Lord, that at all times we might be there for each other, to support each other, so that everyone feels connected and included and cared for and belonging. And Lord, make us outward looking as well. Keep us from wanting to keep what we have here just for ourselves. But may we sense the the pushing of your spirit to look out and to say what we have through your grace is for the world. So Lord, may we be seen as a church worth belonging to. A church worth joining. And may our private worship in this place be so spirit-filled and spirit-led that it turns into public witness outside of this place. Because Jesus is Lord. And Jesus is the Saviour of the world. Amen.